following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 10, 30, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. So we are going to be talking about this morning in our series called Messy. We're going to be talking about some of the difficult relationships every one of us have uh, difficult people in our life, you know, for example, um, people that would come to church on a Sunday like this wearing Florida State colors. I mean, there's just difficult people out there, you know, evil is in their hearts, you know, I mean, garnet, I mean, who's ever heard of a color called garnet? It's maroon, okay, you don't have to be like, we're garnet, all right, who, who cares about that, anyway. No, we love you, if you're a Florida State fan, we love you, you know, you need Jesus too, um, <laughs> especially you need Jesus. Uh, but we're talking about difficult people in our lives, and we're talking about um, we, the, these types of people that we come in contact with, and all of us have them. And some of those people in our life are people that are maybe really close to us. They may be people we spend a lot of time with, maybe coworkers. But there's, there's, and they come in different categories. And, but there's one type of person that's particularly messy for us to think through how to deal with in our own lives. So, for example, there's people that maybe in your own family, maybe at the place that you work, and they're people that come from a completely different worldview, a completely different faith, completely different understanding of how life works than you do. And sometimes those relationships can be antagonistic. So let me give you an example. It's a family member that you have that knows about your faith, knows that you believe in Jesus, knows that you're trying to, to follow after him, knows about your faith, and any chance they get, especially when there's people around, they want to pick at it. Maybe it's that person at your work that anytime any Christian they hear about in the news does something that's a little off or gets in trouble or does something that embarrasses their faith, they bring that, hey, Christian, did you hear about so-and-so? Let me ask you about this person because clearly you're supposed to answer for the entire Christian faith there in your office. Maybe you have someone like that. They, they're bringing those questions, and it's not necessarily well-meaning, but they're, they're pushing you to try to, to, to stretch you. Maybe they want to paint you in a corner. Maybe it's someone that lives a lifestyle so different from how you feel called to live that they're almost waiting for you to say something so they can paint you into the corner of being intolerant or judgmental. Maybe there's someone in your life, I'm not talking about these good friends that, that operate uh, from a different, uh, a different worldview, they maybe have a different faith, that you have a good relationship with, healthy relationship with, that's beautiful, that's wonderful. I'm talking about sometimes those relationships can be messy. And sometimes these can be some of the hardest people for us to know, how am I supposed to, how am I supposed to think through, what, what categories am I supposed to think through and how to handle this type of person in my life? Well, well we're going to look at a passage, we're studying about Daniel. Daniel had some very messy situations he found himself in, and God used him powerfully in one man's life, and we're going to look at how God did that. If you'd open in your Bible or your Bible app to Daniel chapter 4, um, it's also going to be up here on the screens. Let me give you a little background about Daniel Daniel, Daniel is living in Babylon right now. Um, he grew up in Judah, in Jerusalem. 
He, um, while during his lifetime, King Nebuchadnezzar leading the, with the Babylonian army, they came and they conquered Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and they took groups of Jewish people back to Babylon. They're now living in exile. Daniel was one of these people. And now they, they he, so he grew up in an environment that was conducive to how God had called him to live. Israel, the society, was built around God's laws. It was built. The holidays were around God's laws. The, the way that, that they came together in Jerusalem throughout the year, the laws were built around God's laws. It was conducive to their godliness. Now they find themselves in exile. They find themselves in a place that's not built with their godliness in mind. So it's messy. It's especially messy for Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, because they are not only living in Babylon now, they're actually in the king's palace being trained to be advisors. And along the way, they, they are, they, you see them struggle and have to decide how do they honor God in this environment that they're in. Now, the chapter immediately before, chapter 3, immediately before the one we're going to study this morning, um, is about, not about Daniel, it's about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And let me give you the basic of what happens. Basically, and you should go back and read this chapter, it is a phenomenal story. Basically, these three men are working there close to King Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar sets up a statue of himself and commands everyone to, when they hear the trumpet, to bow down and worship the statue of himself. Okay, he's got a little bit of an ego problem. He says, I want you to bow down and worship the statue. If you don't, I'm going to throw you into the furnace. You're gonna, I'm going to kill you. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they blow the trumpet, they refuse to bow down. He tries to, to make an incredible story uh, that's a little bit longer, shorter. He throws them into the furnace. But God miraculously protects them. He looks in, he sees them walking around in the furnace, and he walks out, and yet again, Nebuchadnezzar is shocked. And he has to, he has to say, wow, I, I don't understand who this God is that you, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, worship. Incredible story. And then we get to Daniel chapter 4. Let's check this out. Verse 1. It says this, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth... Peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. Look at this. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I don't know if you caught that. This story starts out with Nebuchadnezzar and he is, he's just praised God. Did you catch that in there? He just stopped and sang a little praise to God. Holy God. This is Nebuchadnezzar, the bad guy. What is chapter four? It's completely different. As you're going through Daniel, you have this narrator kind of from outside in speaking in to the situation, telling the story. You get to chapter four and it starts off with Nebuchadnezzar as the narrator. What is chapter four? It is a letter Nebuchadnezzar is writing to his whole kingdom No, he's writing it to the whole world. He's written this open letter throughout his kingdom. His kingdom stretches across the Middle East, but he's one of the most powerful men in the world and his influence stretches outside of his kingdom. He's written this letter to every person that he can reach. It's being sent out using his influence to send it out to every single soul on the planet. And in it, he's actually praising God for something that God did that got his attention. Now, we haven't been told what this is yet. Chapter 4 is going to explain what happens. But I want you to get the gravity of this. This is incredible. Nebuchadnezzar, 
the one who destroyed the temple, destroyed Jerusalem, is writing a letter to the known world praising God. Now here's what we're going to find out that happens. He has another dream. And in this dream, he calls Daniel, he calls all his wise men together. His wise men can't interpret this dream. He's really troubled by it. Finally, Daniel comes in, and Daniel is going to interpret this dream for him. Now, let's see what, this, what happens. We're going to pick it up when Daniel comes in. The king has just told Daniel the dream, and this is Daniel's reaction. We'll, we'll find out what the dream is here also. Look at this, verse 18. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, that's Daniel's uh, Babylonian name, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. And Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The king tells him the dream. He says, okay, Daniel, tell me what the interpretation is. And all of a sudden, he just sees the color drain from Daniel's face. I don't know if you've ever had to be the person that was the bearer of bad news. Have you ever been in that role? It is a very uncomfortable role. What Daniel what says here is that Daniel is dismayed. It says that he is, he is afraid, he's alarmed, he is shocked and dismayed. Maybe the color drains from Daniel's face. Maybe he starts rubbing his forehead like this. Maybe sweat beads are starting to form and maybe he's starting to, to kind of uh, roll his hands like this and he's seeing him. Maybe he just, he just can't even speak a word and the king says, no, it's okay, tell me what it is. The first thing Daniel can say is, oh, my king, I, this, I wish this was for your enemies, not for you. I would never wish this on you. Look at what he says. This is where we learn what the dream is, verse 20. The tree you saw which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king. You have grown and become strong and your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, to, to heaven and dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots to the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. All right, pause for a second. Here was the dream. Nebuchadnezzar is sleeping at night, and all of a sudden he sees this tree, and it's growing up, and it keeps growing stronger and stronger, and it doesn't just grow taller than all the trees. It doesn't just grow taller than the mountains. It grows up to the heavens, all the way up into the sky, and it's covering all the earth with, with its branches. And everything's living in its shade, and it's thriving. There's fruit on this tree. There's food for all the beasts. They're coming in its shade, living in its branches. It's absolutely thriving, and then a watcher comes. Okay, that's probably even scarier in his dream than it sounds. A watcher comes up and says, cut down the tree, leave a stump until seven seasons pass over it. And Daniel starts the interpretation. He says, the tree is you. Now he keeps going. Look at this. Verse 24. This is the interpretation, O king, 
It is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the King that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Now watch what Daniel says. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquity by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. He essentially says all this that's being said, you're the tree, king you're going to be cut off and you're going to be like a beast, driven from among men like a beast. He says, he begs him, he says, please, there's a beautiful plea in here, please turn from this sin. He says, for your own sake so that your prosperity may be lengthened. Now you say, okay, he's going to be like a beast? I mean, what is that a metaphor for? I mean, what's that talking about? Well, let's see what happens. 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months. He was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, watch this, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And while the words were still on the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And immediately, watch, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. Now let's finish this up. This is Nebuchadnezzar speaking again at the end of his letter. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of the heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now, look at this. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble." That is incredible. That's a letter Nebuchadnezzar wrote and sent it out to every person in the world. Unbelievable. Daniel pleased with him. He says, please, Nebuchadnezzar, this is a judgment. He says, oh, my king. Did you, did you hear that language? Oh, my Lord, my king. He says, please, would you hear this? For, for your own sake, would you turn to righteousness? Please, so that your prosperity can be lengthened. Did Nebuchadnezzar listen? No. 
About a year later, he's walking along on his palace, and he looks out over Babylon. Look at all that I have made for my glory. He's looking out over Babylon. Maybe he's looking at the incredible hanging gardens, some of the ancient wonders of the world. He's like, look at all of this for my glory. And the words are not even out of his mouth, and a voice from heaven comes down, speaks a judgment on him. And what happens? It talks about him leaving from, from or being around humans and being like a beast. Well, that's not a metaphor for something. That literally is what happened, it tells us. In fact, there's a psychiatric condition called zoanthropy where people actually believe they're an animal. Bo- boanthropy in particular is believing you're a cow. Talk about humbling. In, um, in some archaeological, there's archaeological evidence, there's tiny little fragments, but it seems to indicate that later in his, at some point in Nebuchadnezzar's reign, later in his reign, he starts to, ha- starts to really struggle, he's not listening to advisors, he's separating from himself, and it seems like he puts his, his son in charge for a season, we don't, film the, we don't know the rest of the details, but he's just not himself, well the scripture fills in the rest of the details, boanthropy. He's, he's eating grass in a field. His hair is growing out. His nails are growing out. He's acting like a beast. He goes insane. And he's being humbled. And eventually he looks up to the heavens and God returns his mind to him. And you have this incredible moment where he's now sending out. He's been, he was so humiliated. He goes from being such a, uh, an egomaniac to being so humiliated. But in his brokenness, he's turning to God And he's letting that brokenness out for the entire world to see so he can praise God and give him glory. An incredible declaration. Do you see what God uniquely does in this man's life named Nebuchadnezzar? Now, this is an awesome story. At some point, we've got to go back and study this story from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective. But the purpose of this series is to watch Daniel in these interactions, in these messy interactions. And I want you to see Daniel's role in this Did you notice the entire time Daniel's interaction with Nebuchadnezzar is he's so pro-Nebuchadnezzar? Did you you catch that? He's very much for him. He's very gracious. He's very loving. At the very beginning, he's receiving this interpretation, and you see he's alarmed. He's delivering bad news. He's alarmed. Maybe he's wringing his hands. I mean, he, he is scared for this man. You see, as it's going through, he's referring to him as, he says, man, I wish this on your enemies, not for you. I would not wish this on you. He refers to him, he says, my Lord, the king, at the end, he pleads with him, please turn away from your sin for your own sake, turn away from your sin. Do you see this grace and this love? Now, let's be reminded why that's so remarkable. Remember who Nebuchadnezzar is? Nebuchadnezzar is the guy who destroyed Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar is the guy who desecrated the temple. He destroyed God's temple. He's the guy who takes the furniture and the the items out of God's temple, puts them in his idolatrous temple back in Babylon. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar is the guy, Daniel almost got torn limb from limb like the other wise men because he couldn't predict a dream until God showed up and gave Daniel the ability to work a miracle. I mean, this is the guy who almost tore Daniel limb from limb. This is the guy that in the last chapter just threw Daniel's best friends into a furnace. And look at Daniel's demeanor. Don't you, you more kind of expect Daniel to be sitting there and he's getting the interpretation and he's not doing this. You kind of expect him to be doing this. You kind of expect Daniel to be like, 
Finally, God, you've heard my prayer. Bring judgment on this guy. This guy is bad news. He's a megalomaniac. He, he is, he's a killer. He destroyed uh, your people. I mean, this, this is the guy. I mean, take him out. You expect him to be like, all right, let me tell you the interpretation, king. You got this coming to you. You kind of expect him to say, here's the interpretation. You're going to be cut off like a stump, drop the mic, and walk out. It's not what he does. He pleads with him. He says, I don't wish this on you. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar's the bad guy in Daniel's life. He says, I don't wish this on you. My king? He pleads with him, please, turn away from the sin for your own sake. For your own sake. I, like, I'm looking out for you for your own sake. Please turn away from the sin. I mean, we learn so much from Daniel's incredible love that he shows with this, uh, talk about a messy, difficult person. It's a person he's walking on eggshells because at any moment he could torturously kill Daniel. See, we, we have some messy people in, in our lives. It's that person that is any chance they get, that they, they live so differently in their life. It's that friend that used to be friends, maybe before you started following after Jesus, used to be friends and you used to go out and do things and then you came to Christ, your eyes were open, you're following after Jesus and now this person, maybe they're threatened, maybe they're convicted, but it's been throughout the years and they've been saying, man, what happened to you? And, and now they take it out on your faith. They post nasty things on your Facebook they send you emails about things. They bring things up with the rest of your friend, friend group. I mean, this is the people that's become, this person's become antagonistic to your faith. It's a person at work that always in their conversation tries, because they know you're a Christian, they try and paint the way you are and what you believe in the worst light possible. How are we supposed to engage in that messy situation? Because for some of you, that's the Nebuchadnezzar in your life. It's that messy person that you, don't, you have to be around them because you work with them or they, they're your friend or they're, they're your family member. They're always trying to argue you and, and have a, a, an insight that you can't answer. That's that messy person, that Nebuchadnezzar in your life. How do you handle that person? Well, what we learned from Daniel is he showed incredible love. I want to look at three things briefly at what we learned from, from Daniel. Here's the first thing. Love is willing to risk the relationship. You know, there comes a point in time where speaking truth will risk the relationship. And sometimes what we, our view of love is sometimes we think love is keeping the peace, preserving the relationship, and making sure everyone gets along. But sometimes I have to risk the relationship. There may be a time that you might have to risk that relationship, not try to break it, but you may have to risk it to speak truth into that. And that might be a tremendous sacrifice because that might be a very precious relationship to you. And maybe the sacrificial love that you're demonstrating is I'm going to speak the truth to you for your own sake. Even if you're mad at me and never want to talk to me again. Even if this brings conflict in because sometimes love means bringing conflict in for the sake of that person. There comes a point in time where love is willing to risk the relationship. Here's the second thing that we learn from Daniel. Love has bedside manner. Have you ever, um, maybe you've got a, a doctor's report, you've been in the doctor's office and you get some bad news, but have you ever had a doctor that just says it in such a calloused way? Oh, by the way, I'm going to need to amputate your leg. It's going to be terrible. Sorry about that. Um, 
man, if you've ever had that happen, that demeanor is uh, almost as injurious as the actual injury. There is never an excuse. Daniel, we see he's willing to risk the relationship. He doesn't just water down because he doesn't want to make Nebuchadnezzar mad at him. You realize the personal threat it probably was to Daniel to speak this truth. He's willing to risk all that to speak the truth to him. But he did it always with graciousness, with respect, with love. He was always showing him respect. He never at any point said, well, you know, this is tough love, Nebuchadnezzar, and so here's what tough love, I'm just going to shoot you straight. Here's what you got to know to fix things up in your life. No, he always showed him grace and respect. Tough love does not mean rude truth. There's a way to speak the truth. There's never an excuse to be disrespectful, defensive, or rude, or condemning. Love is patient, it's kind, it is not rude. Love can always speak the truth with grace, with grace and respect and love. But here's the third thing, and I want to camp on this one for a minute. Love is grace-tinted. Our society, how it tends to operate is when it comes to dealing with other people, there's only two categories is how our society sees it. There's either tolerance or being judgmental. They see it as those are the only two categories. Tolerance is operating from a foundation of relativism. In other words, what's okay for you, that's your business. That's fine. I'm not going to speak into that. What's okay, what I do is okay for me, and you do your thing, I'll do my thing. I'm not going to speak anything. I can't speak against what you do. You don't speak against what I do. what, What is absolute truth anyway? It's just, let's just be tolerant of each other, and that's one system. And the idea in our society is there's only one other category. The other category is being judgmental. And that category, and it actually is a real category, is saying, I know what's wrong with you. I know what truth is, and I can see what's wrong with you. If you just listen to me, I could help you. From up here on my pedestal, I can look down and see where your sin is, and I could help you with this. And it's looking down from a pedestal condemningly. That's being judgmental. But our culture doesn't understand there's a third category that you really can only appreciate if you've encountered the gospel of Jesus Christ. The third category is grace. It's something altogether different. It's something that stands on the truth and says there is truth, there is right and wrong. But it doesn't go into judgmentalism because how could I possibly judge you when I stand before God condemned as well? How could I be condemning when I am worthy of condemnation? And the only thing I would want to do is point you to Jesus because in Christ there is no condemnation. And so, yes, I can stand on the truth, but I can have grace because I also all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So I also have fallen short. I'm talking to you as a fellow sinner, not as someone who's looking down on you. I'm talking to someone also that if it wasn't for the grace of God, I would be a lost, miserable person. See, it's talking about grace. You say, okay, I I get what you're saying. You're saying, you know, it's it's that old phrase, um, love the sinner, just hate the sin. I know that that's what you're saying. Well, actually, you know, I'm not sure that phrase is the best representation of Christian doctrine. You say, well, what do you mean? That's in the Bible, right? I think even Jesus said it. Actually, it's not in the Bible. Gandhi said it. What Jesus said was something a little bit different. You say, well, I mean, what's wrong with that phrase? I mean, I think the intention behind that phrase is right, but typically the problem is we never get around to actually loving the sinner. 
what happens is sometimes the inflection behind that is there is something uniquely hate-worthy in your sin, but I will choose to love you anyway. What did Jesus actually say? He said, love your neighbor, period. Love them. Just love them. Well, it sounds like you're saying that we shouldn't care about sin. Well, here's what we know about sin. What we're actually saying is let's just be consistent with our doctrine. What we believe is Ephesians chapter 2. I was dead in my sin, and while I was dead in my sin, Christ made me alive. I was blind, and now I see. I was lost, and Jesus came and got me. If that's what I believe, why would I expect someone who is lost to not act like a lost person? Does anyone get cleaned up morally and then come to Jesus? That's heresy. We all come to Jesus just how we are. Can I remind you of a verse we're probably going to end up talking about at Christmas time because it's a Christmas verse? Matthew 1, 21, the angel says to Mary, says you shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Who saves people from their sins? Jesus, my role and your role is not to save people from their sins. It's to point them to the one who does. That's what our call is. See, what we learn from Daniel as he's in this messy situation with this difficult person is he's pouring out grace. Yes, there comes a point in time where he is called to speak the truth and it's a risk. It comes, but when he does it, he speaks it with grace and love and respect. He pours that out, but we see that he's grace-tinted. He's calling them to make the right decision for their own sake, not because he's just personally offended by his sin. No, for your own sake, please, turn to the one who can save you. And that is our call, to turn to, to be that beacon that is pointing people to the one who can save them. You know, the best foundation for us to get our hearts and understand what does that look like in the unique, messy situations we're in is just simply go back and remember how Jesus handled you and handle others just like that. What did he do for you? You were a lost sheep way far away from the flock. And what did the good shepherd do? Did he say, hey, the flock's over here. When you figure it out, you'll know where we'll be. The good shepherd, he came after you. He found you injured and tangled and he picked you up and he carried you back to the flock. What did Jesus do for you? It was the woman caught in adultery. And all the judgment because her life just got destroyed. Now she has got all the judgment of all the religious people pouring condemnation and they're all holding stones. They're about to throw them at her and they say, Jesus, what do you think we should do? And he just simply said, how about this? Let the person who hasn't sinned cast the first stone. And they all had to walk away because they had all had sinned except one, Jesus, who's the only one who hadn't sinned. So what did he do? Did he take her outside the, the city and start throwing stones at her? He put the stone down and picked her up out of the dust. That's you and that's me. That's how, how he demonstrated his love for us. What did he do in your life? Well, you were that prodigal son or daughter, you ran far away. You took all the blessings that he had given you and you spent it on yourself. 
He took all the wonderful things he had done for you in your life as a good, wonderful father, and you took advantage of it just for your own self, and you saw that it led you into bankruptcy. Spiritual, moral, social, sexual, every kind of bankruptcy. And you came back thinking that I would have to, you'd have to climb your way back to God. And what, what did you find? You found that he was waiting, looking on the horizon, just waiting for you. And the moment he saw you, he ran to you. And even before you could say, Jesus, I'll do all these things to get back to you. I'll do all these things to be obedient, to, to earn your love. You couldn't even get him out of, out of your mouth before he had hugged you and he wrapped a robe around you and threw a party for you. That's what he's done for you and for me. And we're supposed to demonstrate that to all those around us. Church, we're going to close our time together by sharing communion. There's two elements here. There's this broken bread. You'll see pieces of broken bread, and you'll see this juice that's poured out. And these are two powerful symbols that we are commanded to take by Jesus himself. And it's symbolic. The, the broken bread is symbolic of how his body was broken for us on the cross. And this juice is symbolic of his blood that was shed. And we take this, it's another way, using another sense of our body to take it to remember the incredible grace that He has shown on us, the things He he suffered for us. And so this morning, here's how we leave. We leave thinking about the grace He's extended to us and demonstrating that together. So in just a moment, I'm going to invite you. You can come up here. There's stations up here. or You can go to the back. There's stations in the back. And you'll just come up here. You'll take a piece of bread and you'll take some juice and you'll take it. And then you'll go back to your seat. And we'll close with a song. Some of you are here this morning and what you're saying is, you know what, I, I feel so far from God, but if everything you're saying is true, that I, that I don't have to clean myself up and then come back to God, I can just run right at Him and He'll welcome me in. If, if that's what you're saying, if that's true, then I'm in. I want to do that today. Then make this your declaration of that. Take this, this small meal as your declaration that you are running back to Jesus, accepting His forgiveness. And if that's you, if that's your decision for the first time today, you're going to find in the middle of the table, um, when you go to get, a, get the juice, there's some wooden cups. That's for you. If you're making that decision for the first time, it's a token. It's for you to always remember this day when you gave your life to Jesus. The rest of us will use these plastic cups on the side, but that one's specifically for you if you put your faith in Jesus today. You might be here and you might be saying, look, I, I have a lot of questions. I'm not sure that I'm ready to take that step yet. Man, I, I just want, if I respect that honesty. And what I want to encourage you to do is hold off from coming forward or going to the back to take this. Hold off because this is a declaration that you've put your faith in Jesus. Can we just take a second now and get our hearts right? Before we could possibly celebrate the sacrifice that Jesus made for us and the incredible grace we don't deserve, maybe some of us need to confess a lack of grace that we've had towards others. How in the face of his incredible love towards us could we not extend that love? Confess that. And now take a second in your own heart and just thank him for the incredible grace that he loves you, that he accepts you, accepts you because of this sacrifice. Thank you, Jesus. You can begin coming forward or going to the back now. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. 
If you would like to speak with somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321. Or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.